Let us pray. Dear Father, thank you for bringing us here this morning in worship and in praise that we might hear and understand your word for us. Open our hearts and open our minds that we might hear what you're saying. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. When you were a child, did any of you have an unfortunate nickname? <laughs> if you didn't, I bet you had friends who did. I can remember when my son was in school and he had a young friend whose name was Artie Moss. And God bless that little boy. He went through his entire elementary and high school years known as fungus. <laughs> Another child was born with beautiful white skin and an adorable clump of white curls on top of his head. And so from very early on, his parents, his family, and others that gathered all knew him as Q-Tip. <laughs> and I can tell you for sure, that man today has no hair on the top of his head, white, curly, or otherwise, and yet that name has stuck with him throughout his life. Those are some unfortunate names. Well, I'm going to talk to you about another unfortunate nickname. Our gospel passage this morning is all about doubting Thomas. And before we even start, I want to let you know that I think Thomas got a bad rap, and he got a bad nickname, and it has stuck with him for centuries. Why do I say that? Well, to start with, he was not by any means the only one of the disciples or the followers that doubted. All the disciples showed signs of doubt after Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. Earlier in John 20, we had verses 24 through 29 today, but earlier in the chapter, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb twice on Easter morning, finding the tomb empty. And during that time, she thought his body had been moved and was trying desperately to find out who had moved the body and where they put it. It wasn't until Jesus appeared behind her and spoke with her personally that she accepted that it was him and that he had risen from the dead. And then Mary Magdalene followed his instructions and went directly to the disciples to tell them, I've seen the Lord. But you know what? They dismissed her. You know why? Because they hadn't personally seen him yet. So you see, there was lots of doubt to go around, even before Thomas. So that night, still on Easter, in that evening, ten of the disciples were gathered together. Judas wasn't there because he was long gone after the betrayal. But Thomas was not with them on that night. But they were locked in a room. And they were locked in a room for their own safety because they were in genuine fear 
that the people who had killed Jesus would be coming for them next as his followers, especially since it seemed that his body was missing. They had no idea. Their whole lives were turned upside down. They were scared. And so here they were, locked in this room, when suddenly Jesus appeared among them. He said, peace be with you. And when he said that, he showed them his wounds in his side, in his hands. And after they had seen his wounds, they rejoiced that Jesus had conquered death. Well, Jesus stayed with them for a while longer and gave them more instruction before leaving. And then later on, the disciples saw Thomas. And they said, we've seen the Lord. And I have to figure Thomas said something like, "Uh, yeah, sure you did. I wonder what was going through his mind as they became more and more insistent that Jesus, their crucified leader, had somehow come back from the dead to get into a locked room to meet with them. Did he think they were delusional or maybe altogether having some sort of mental break? Or maybe he thought that they were just trying to play a trick on him. Either way, he wasn't buying it. So he was very emphatic when he told the rest of the disciples that unless he could personally put his finger in Jesus' wounds in his hand and put his hand in Jesus' side, that he would not believe. And based on that, he became doubting Thomas. But stick with me here, because at this point, he hasn't asked for anything that the other disciples haven't already seen. Eight days later, the next week, The disciples are back in the same locked room. Thomas is with them this time. And Jesus appeared to them again in the locked room. He said, peace be with you. And then he directly addressed Thomas. He invited Thomas to put his fingers into the the nail marks in his hands. He invited Thomas to take his hand and put it into his side. And he encouraged Thomas to believe. Thomas replied, my Lord and my God. Jesus then asked, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Now, on the surface, it kind of sounds like Jesus is rebuking Thomas for his lack of faith. But I don't think that's what's happened here at all. If Jesus wanted to teach Thomas a lesson, he could have easily done that before or even without allowing Thomas to see his wounds and put his fingers in them. Instead, I think Jesus was using that to address the doubt that he knew so many of his followers 
would deal with in the years and years to come. On that first Easter, only a few people saw the empty tomb. And not all that many people had the opportunity to see Jesus during that time between when he was resurrected and when he ascended. Since then, over these past 2,000 years, how many people, billions perhaps, have been called to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ based only on secondhand information and relying on faith alone? We are among those that are covered by that blessing from Jesus. We certainly weren't able to go to the empty tomb and see the risen Christ for ourselves. But Jesus blessed all those who will believe without ever seeing. Jesus wants to help us move beyond doubt and into full faith. And now, just like in biblical times, Jesus meets people where they are. No matter where we fall short in our faith journey, Christ will approach us in the way we need and he will find a way to reach us. The text doesn't tell us whether Jesus, uh, whether Thomas ever took Jesus up on his offer to, to feel his wounds. But you know, it really doesn't matter. Jesus' blessing was enough. And Thomas's response was such a powerful declaration of faith when he cried out, my Lord and my God. Speaking of Thomas, though, I am left with one lingering question from this passage. Where was Thomas during that first night when Jesus appeared to the other disciples? Why wasn't he around? Jesus had been crucified. This was the third day. He wasn't with them. It seems logical that they would have been leaning on each other for support as they were trying to figure out what was going on. I wonder what happened to him. I wonder if he went to find some long-lost friends or family, something familiar, something to stabilize him. Or maybe he went to a bar. I think they had those back then, in some form. Maybe he went somewhere and was isolated in prayer. Or maybe, maybe he was overwhelmed and just simply wanted to be alone. We have no way to know based on the text. But it does give us the chance to consider this, to consider his thought process and to consider our own thought process in the same light. What do we do in a situation when all seems lost, when the world is upside down? When you believe 
you have done your best to be a good Christian and a good parent, and you've acted responsibly and prayed and tried to do the right thing. And despite all that, the unimaginable happens. Your marriage fails anyway. You experience the loss of a pregnancy. You have raised your children in the church and in a loving household, and yet, despite your best efforts, as soon as they got out on their own, they turned away from God. You get a late night phone call. There's been a car crash, and someone near and dear to you has been killed. In my case, the fill in the blank for that is my husband had cancer and I prayed. Oh, did I pray. I prayed for him and I prayed with him and I prayed some more. And he died anyway. When life hits us that hard, it's so easy to slide into a questionable, doubtful time. Where is God in this? Does he care? How does he let this happen? Why doesn't he step in and stop the pain? In my case, it took a while but eventually I moved forward by calling a priest. And that was an interesting undertaking because I had not yet established myself in a church in South Carolina. That turned out to be a wise decision, especially since my other thoughts during that time were not nearly that positive. Still, working with this priest who was indeed a godsend. It was a slow process. It took a long time for me to get back to life. And I know that I could not have done that on my own. Author C.S. Lewis, who watched his beloved wife die of cancer, put it this way. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God's plan is for us to return to him, to lead our best possible life on earth. Sometimes we need to be reminded of our purpose. Pain is a sharp clear tool in that process. To put it another way, if someone's an atheist, the time that they spend on this earth, whether that's 80 years or 20 years, is their life, period, end of story, that's the end of the line, there is nothing afterward. 
Christians, on the other hand, Christians believe that these years on earth are important and that they're to be used wisely and to be enjoyed, but they are actually preparation for a far, far greater life to come. These earthly years are like like a very thin ray of light peeking through at us from the great sunshine that is eternity and life in heaven with God. In closing, I'd like to return us to our gospel passage. Our passage ends at verse 29, but John 20 actually has 31 verses. And I'd like to leave you with verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in him. That is the final point of this lesson. So that you, by believing, may have life in him. What does that look like? Have you believed? How do we how do we exhibit that life? It begins with prayer. Let us pray together now. Dear Father, we come to you during this Easter season as your children. Thank you for your word and for sending your son to live with us, to patiently teach and correct us, for not lashing out at doubts and for showing us by his life and by his resurrection and ascension that he is of you. We pray that you will help and guide us when we face doubts and uncertainties, especially those caused by our earthly troubles, and show us your way so that by believing we may have life in his name. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen.